0: Is there a benefit to taking a multivitamin to stave off Alzheimer's disease?
1: Predicting who will respond to immunotherapy for
0: cancer. What is the impact of genetic risk factors on healthy life years?
1: And what is the long-term outcome for men who undergo active surveillance for prostate cancer?
0: That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist.
1: And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine.
0: Rick, if it's okay with you, we'll start with Alzheimer's and dementia. This is the Journal of the Alzheimer's Association, and this has been getting just an enormous amount of press. This was a study, a large randomized two-by-two factorial three-year trial that was taking a look ostensibly at the beginning of cocoa extract and whether or not it could have any impact on someone's subsequent development of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So they have this cocoa extract, and then since it's this two-by-two factorial design, they also used a multivitamin supplement. They looked at a number of assessments of somebody's cognition, including executive function, memory composite scores, and they also subdivided this into different subgroups who were at higher risk for cognitive decline. What they discerned in this study was that while the cocoa extract had no benefit whatsoever, the multivitamin group did seem to slow the rate of progression. That's kind of an interesting finding. And in light of the many, many times we've talked about supplementation, once again, throws some muddiness into the waters.
1: This is a relatively short term study. As you mentioned, they gave people either a multivitamin or cocoa or neither or both for a period of about two and a half years and every year tested cognitive function. However, you know, we have a prior large study. It was a physician health study and they had a 6,000 person sub study in there in which they used multivitamins as well and looked at cognitive function over a 12 year period. And in that study done in men over the age of 65, highly educated group, multivitamins did not alter cognitive function compared to placebo. So why do you think that this particular study, the one you're reporting on, is at odds with the other one?
0: Well, I can't explain that. I think it's just tantalizing this notion that when you compare it, that you actually see a slight benefit, and it still is admittedly a slight benefit. It delays this onset of dementia just a little bit.
1: So one possible explanation is maybe it helps in the very early part, the first two and a half years. These patients were a little bit different. The group I mentioned was all men. Your study had both men and women, both in the older age group. The multivitamin could have been a little bit different, and they were. I think what it goes to show is this study report doesn't really settle the issue. In fact, they make the comment, gosh, we need follow-up studies to confirm this. Would you agree?
0: I do agree with that. The other thing that they note in here is that based on the self-report of TIAs, congestive heart failure, cabbage, angioplasty, or stent, those folks appeared to have a slightly greater benefit. I guess that's also something that, hmm, I'd like to see substantiated further.
1: And you're right. You'd like to see it be available and efficacious or effective in every group or not, which again says we just need confirmation before we take this as gospel truth.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: So Elizabeth, let's talk about immunotherapy for cancer. Is that okay?
0: Sure. That sounds great. That's in Nature Medicine.
1: And we're going to talk about what's called CAR T-cell therapy. CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. What a mouthful. So here's what happens for particular types of cancer, and particularly what's known as lymphoma. The T-cells can actually kill the tumor. Unfortunately, we just don't have enough of those T-cells around. So this CAR T-therapy is, if you have cancer, I'll take your blood, I'll isolate the T-cells, I'll expose them to the cancer antigen, I'll grow millions of those cells over the course of several weeks, and then I'll infuse them back into you to treat the cancer. Despite that, there's a large number of individuals, as many as 60% of individuals that even after this still have progression of disease. What you'd like to know is, okay, can we predict who those individuals may or may not be? In a relatively small study of 32 patients, they provided CAR T-cell therapy, and they analyzed the blood in those individuals to see if they could identify factors that predicted who didn't respond or else had a toxicity in this particular case of neurotoxicity, they could actually identify another group of T-cells, not the ones you infuse, but another group that if they increased, it actually predicted progression and less neurotoxicity. There are what's called regulatory T-cells. These people made T-cells of their own that
0: counteracted
1: the T-cells that were meant to fight the cancer.
0: And since it's such an incredibly promising therapy and has been expanded and increasingly being modified, I think figuring out who is likely to respond and who isn't is really an important issue.
1: It is. Now, unfortunately, this particular thing that they're measuring is done after the fact, is after you've given the CAR T-cell therapy, you'd like to know before you gave it.
0: Yep. Staying in nature medicine, let's turn to this study taking a look at genetic risk factors and their impact on healthy life years. What's in your genes and what's in the environment and other exposures that you might have and how does that really impact your ability to live a healthy life? And I think there's been a lot of debate about that over the years. Would you agree?
1: I totally agree.
0: So this study takes a look at the effect of genetic risk factors on disability adjusted life years or dallies They got genetic information from over 735,000 people and they looked at 80 diseases. They also looked at polygenic scores for multi-site chronic pain and for other things. And in fact, in this multi-site chronic pain, it really impacted on the dallies in those folks. This is a paper that's just full of all kinds of really intense analyses. I think at the end of the day, what I came out with was, okay, this is great. And maybe we're going to be taking a look at people's genes and seeing whether or not they have these particular variants that they've associated with different things. Interestingly, a lot of these variants were associated with cardiovascular disease. Maybe that's going to help us tailor things so that we can help people to avoid the development of them. I do not think it answers anything about the environmental factors and lifestyle factors that people choose and what that interaction is.
1: Yeah, I think your point's well taken. And in fact, for those individuals that aren't f- familiar with DALAs, these are lost healthy life years. And Elizabeth, you're right. You can identify these genetic things, but right now, these genetic risk factors are really not yet modifiable in practice. What it might do is say, well, if you've got this genetic predisposition, maybe you ought to have a healthy lifestyle. But you and I would say, well, that shouldn't determine it. You ought to have a healthy lifestyle no matter what. And these are just what we've identified, and there are other things we haven't even identified. You know, when people debate, is it genes or is it environment? The answer is yes, it's both. There's interactions. The genetic component is important, but it doesn't negate the environment and things that we need to do in terms of preventive medicine. But it does show that some of the more common genetic abnormalities we see, they're spread out across the population, and they put people to increased risk, do substantially impact our healthy life years.
0: And at some point, I think in the probably not too distant future, we're going to be integrating this with personalized medicine and helping people to avoid what they might be at risk to develop. Mm
1: -hmm. These genetic things just put you at risk. It doesn't mean you're going to have a particular condition or disease.
0: Finally, let's turn to JAMA Network Open. Let's look at prostate cancer and active surveillance.
1: this active surveillance, it's really the management strategy for men that have low-risk prostate cancer. We say active surveillance, that means you do regular testing to see if there's progression of the disease. And if there is, then you would treat it. And you don't treat it initially at the beginning because those treatments, whether it's some type of chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or radical prostatectomy, they all carry some side effects. Do I treat it now or can I just kind of wait and then treat it if I need to? And that's what this study did. They assessed the long-term outcomes of men with prostate cancer who had low-risk prostate cancer, and they were with active surveillance. And this is a 30-year follow-up. They got the data from a database in Sweden. These are people that weren't referred to a center. This is 98% of all the men in Sweden. So like, if you got prostate cancer, we know about it. These men, most of them that had low-risk cancer, were part of an active surveillance program. And they said, okay, how does that work out for them? And here's what they found out. If you were a man Over the age of 65, and you were enrolled in an active surveillance program, your risk of dying from prostate cancer over that 30 years or until age 85 was usually less than 5%. What was the likelihood that you would need therapy? Somewhere between 30 or 35%. Well, if you're over age 65, then active surveillance is a really good treatment strategy. However, if you're younger, if you're under the age of 60, then they actually had a high risk of prostate cancer death and little benefit in terms of time without active treatment by doing active surveillance. So those are the individuals under the age 60 that probably shouldn't be subjected to active surveillance. Conversely, over the age of 65, active surveillance ends up being the preferred management strategy.
0: I find this pretty interesting because I think that cancer is a different disease at different points in the lifespan. It's been my observation that the younger you are when you get cancer in general, the more aggressive the disease is. And so I'm wondering about that relationship with regard to this observation about men younger than 60 who present with prostate cancer.
1: That's an interesting thought. However, all of these men at least by our traditional risk factor algorithms, they all had low risk cancer. So, their risk based upon the type of cancer, where it was located, was supposed to be the same. One of the differences, if you have it at age 50 as opposed to age 75, you got longer years to either die or develop progression. Your other point may be right is that maybe these cancers, as they're exposed to more testosterone or other things, is that they're more likely to progress as well. So, your point's well taken, but all men in this particular study had low-risk cancer by typical pathologic definitions.
0: So I'm also wondering about the implications for groups of other ethnicities. I'm specifically thinking about Black men in whom prostate cancer is more of an issue and does progress more quickly than it does in other ethnicities.
1: Yeah. And so, Elizabeth, even though this is the first study to compare these benefits over a long period of time, as you noted, this is a very unique group of people. They're Swedish men. You're right. Does this apply to other groups, black men, Hispanic, Asians? Unfortunately, this study doesn't tell us, but it should spur us to do those studies in those populations. Now, active surveillance hasn't been around for a long period of time. It was routinely recommended in 2005. So in most populations, we have a shorter time period.
0: More to come, no doubt. On that note then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy.
1: And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up.